Church, how we doing? Is it okay? My name is Greg Brazil. I am the North Campus pastor. Um, we are, uh, there's usually a whoop or something that comes with that, but that's fine. You guys are, that's good. There we go. I'm kidding. Uh, so we are in the, uh, the approaching Advent. So Advent will start uh, officially next Sunday, but uh, we're in this Advent season. The word Advent, we don't use it a lot, but it means something like an arrival or um, a coming. And so uh, there are really two aspects to it. Uh, one is what theologians refer to as the incarnation, that uh, God the Son took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And so uh, for centuries, the, the Old Testament prophets were kind of calling the shot that one day God would visit his people again and uh, he'd be a light to the nation of Israel. He'd rescue the nation of Israel and he would set the world free uh, from sin, from death, and uh, 2,000 years ago, that happened. Jesus Christ, he took on flesh, he dwelt um, among us, and he uh, lived in our place, he died for us, he rose again for us, now he sits in the heavens, uh, in heaven as our conquering king, but he's not done. Uh, the second aspect to Advent is that he's going to come again. So we're looking forward not just to the first one, that's happened, but the second coming, he's going to come again um, and usher in his kingdom and set all things right. The king will come again, um, and there will be this new beginning, this new life, and if you believe that, you should live a certain way according to what the Bible says. Over and over, the Bible tells us that if you believe he's coming again, that will, that will shape how you live. And so 1 Peter chapter 4 shows us how to do that. It shows us how to live um, as we wait on the king, as we wait for the end to come, uh, Peter tells us, here's what we should be doing. So we're going to spend uh, the next five weeks in uh, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, and I want to read that for you uh, really quickly. Peter says this, uh, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, the, uh, the, the first phrase of verse 7 kind of sets the tone for the whole passage. Peter says in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. Now, no one believes that, though. Like, no one came in tonight, none of you were thinking that today could be the day where the end comes. None of us think, this, not on anyone's radar, really, that, uh, that the end actually is at hand. But what Peter's saying is to live like this, to live like what these verses say, you must believe the end is at hand. There's something about believing that the end is at hand that, that creates this urgency in us, this, this sense that I should be doing these things. So unless you believe this, um, the whole passage kind of collapses on that one phrase. And so I want to spend some time tonight showing, us, uh, showing you what it means to live as if the end were at hand, uh, a portion of that. So we're going to divide it into three sections, uh, and we'll spend all of our time on verse 7 tonight. Okay, so here's what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. That'll be the first part of this tonight. Uh, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's the second part of this. For the sake of your prayers, that's the third part. You got it? So one, two, three, real simple, three parts, and then we're off to dinner or whatever it is you guys do at eight o'clock on a Sunday night. So let's, let's go. Uh, number one, the end of all things is at hand, Peter says. So what does that mean, though? Um, well, it, it doesn't mean that the world will just stop and cease to exist. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that, that, uh, that all of creation, that will, it will somehow, what God spoke into existence will somehow um, cease to exist and disappear into non-existence. That's not what Peter's saying here. Um, the, the key phrase there is the, is the phrase, all things. Um, all things refers to things as we currently experience them. Things, all things in this life under the curse of sin, under the power of the evil one, that is what's going to come to an end. The way life as you know it now, under the power of the curse of sin, that's going to end, Peter says. And so human history, as you and I know it, human history, um, it is going to come to an end, to its completion, to its fulfillment. All things will come to an end. Uh, and so all of the corruption, all of the evil, all of the decay in this world, all of the idolatry, God will bring it to its end. God will put down the mutiny um, of sin and death and Satan once and for all. But with that, um, that becomes a new beginning. And so when the end comes, there's all, the, the way that, that human history ends, there will be a new beginning to human history. Uh, Revelation 21 tells us what the end or what the new beginning will look like. So Revelation 21, and I don't have lots of charts up here to show you how this whole thing plays out. That's not where we're going to go tonight. So if you're wondering about that, there are books on that. But um, what John tells us is after Christ returns and this wedding supper of the Lamb takes place and everything is fully redeemed and renewed, um, John sees something that's coming for us. And here's what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Meaning the sea was no more means likely that there's no more chaos. Um, the sea represents death and chaos for them, not beaches like it does for us. The sea was death and pain. That's no more is what John is saying. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. The things as we experience them now is what he's saying. The former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And so with the end of all things is also the beginning of all things. There's gonna be what John says, a new heaven and a new earth and this new city coming down out of heaven. Notice that it comes down, uh, comes down on this earth. And so we will live on this earth in a glorified state, in a new earth, under a new heaven, and a new city comes down. Um, there's lots of Christian teaching that, said, that suggests that when the end comes, we're gonna skyrocket into outer space and kind of leave this world and God's gonna blow it up. Uh, you know, lots of books and Nicolas Cage films on that kind of idea that God's just gonna like wipe this thing out. We're gonna skyrocket out and then we're done and it's just, you know, kind of us and naked baby angels for the rest of our lives and that's all that it is. No, this says that it actually comes down though. So our great hope is not so much that we would go up there, but that up there would come down here. And so this new city comes down on this new earth under a new heaven, and that's where you dwell forever with God. That's your future hope. And so imagine a city, imagine Austin without sin. Imagine living in this amazing, really cool, and just hip city right now. Imagine living in this city with no sin. There's no corruption, there's no greed, there's no idolatry, there's no 
uh, poverty, there's no crime, there's no traffic, God help us, uh, there's no angry baristas, like why are they so mean, it's just coffee, I'm just, God, it's one Americano, why are you so angry about that? But imagine all of that with, with no sin. There's this glorious city with no sin that's coming for us is what John says. Your future hope, your great hope is not to go up there per se, it's for up there to come down here. And when the end comes, when the end that's at hand, when that comes, it's also a new beginning for us. Now, on the one hand, that's encouraging because it means that, that all that's sad will come untrue. That all that's broken, that all that's been marred and stained by sin, all that you have lost, all that you have missed out on in this life, all of that will be filled up with glory and renewed and all the injustice in this life, all the corruption, all that's wrong will be put right and you will see your king face to face. You will look him in the eyes, the one that you most long for, the one that you long to see right now, the one that your heart throbs for, you will see him, you will look him in the eyes and he will wipe away every tear from every person's eyes that knows him. And so it's encouraging in that sense, it's also sobering because it also means that judgment's coming. The end of all things is at hand means that that renewal is coming, but also with this, I don't have all the details for this right now, but there's judgment coming. Every single human being in this life, believer or not, Christian or not, will give an account for the life that they've lived on this earth. All the deeds that we have done, all the words that we have spoken, in some way we will give an account before a righteous and holy judge. And I think all of us know this. We know that there's a, there's a bar of justice in this universe that all of us know that we've not met. And so all of us, will, we will give an account for our lives. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay Uh, years ago called The World's Last Night. And in the essay was based on a poem by John Donne where he suggests, could this be the world's last night? Could this be it? What if this were the last night that this world ever had? And it's on the second coming of Jesus. And what Lewis says is that all of us have experienced in this life what he calls little verdicts, uh, little little judgments. So um, it's when you find out what someone actually thinks about you. Uh, Either they tell you or someone else tells uh, them tells you for them, but you find out what someone actually thinks. And Lewis says that those are either sweet moments or bitter moments. Um, but they all depend on the knowledge and the wisdom of the judge. And so, ever how wise that person is, or how much they know about you, that they, they judge based on that. And then Lewis says uh, in the world's last night, he said this: "I suppose the experience of the final judgment, which may break in upon us at any moment." The final judgment will be like these little experiences, but magnified to the nth, for it will be infallible judgment. If it is favorable, we shall have no fear. If unfavorable, no hope that it is wrong. And so what Lewis is saying, what the Bible tells us over and over and over is there is a righteous judge who knows your life perfectly, who has infinite wisdom, who has infinite knowledge of all of our life, all of our deeds. We will stand before him and we will give an account for our lives. And so that ought to create this sense of the end being near should create this urgency in us. It it should be like smelling salts to awaken your life that you would wake up and realize that the end actually is at hand. But no one thinks that. 
I mean, no one thinks the end is actually upon us. No one thinks the end's actually coming for us. No one lives like that. Now, if you watch the news from, uh, every day, you'll see uh, just more and more, my goodness, more corruption, more sexual assaults, more um, just scandals in Hollywood or in government and natural disasters, all these things. And you have to ask the question, how much longer can this last? I mean, how much longer can we go with this kind of corruption, this kind of idolatry and wickedness? Will the world not just break at some point? The problem is, though, that wears off. Um, you click the next app, and that just wears off. Uh, you get on something else, and you go about your schedule, and you go to class, and all that just kind of wears off, and it doesn't change how you live right now, because no one thinks the end is actually upon us. But what Peter is saying is it is and it is at hand, meaning it's right here, meaning that it could happen, it, it will happen so swiftly and so suddenly because there, there are two analogies the Bible gives, at least two the, the Bible gives um, for the end, uh, for when the end comes. One is a thief in the night. Now, the thing about thieves is they don't text you first. They don't email you and say, I'm going to rob you at 2 a.m., XOXO, a thief. They don't do that. They just show up, and you're shocked that you wake up one morning and your stuff's gone that was there, and it's taken now. Thieves just show up, and you're shocked by it. Well, the end, the Bible, according to the Bible, is going to be like that. People are just going to be so utterly astonished that they were here one moment, and just something happened, and the end just comes upon them. It crashes in on them, and they weren't ready for it. Uh, the other analogy is the, uh, is the pain of child labor. Uh, uh, Jesus uses that, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, he uses that same language, but this happens so suddenly and so shockingly. If, you, if you've had a child, you know this. Now here's the thing, you know it's coming. I mean, you know there's a human in there and you're eventually gonna go through some pain in about eight or nine months, it's gonna hurt. And you know this, but it's still, when those pains come, trust me, you are astonished when that pain hits you. My wife, we've had three kids, uh, three sons, or she had three sons, and for our third, our third son, we got a midwife. Uh, no, we were not part of some cult or something. It's just what we did. So just chill out. It's, it's fine. Uh, she was a close friend of ours, and she would come to the house and just kind of see how my wife Heather was doing and the progress that she was making. And uh, this friend of ours, she was really big on male decision-making. Um, again, not a cult, just that's how she was. So she's really big on the man makes the major decisions in, you know, in life. And so, um, you know, so what car to buy or what house to purchase or what school to send your kids to. And also, I wasn't aware of this, but also the man decides when it's time to leave for the hospital if your wife is in labor. I had no idea she believed this until we're in labor. So we're in labor. My wife is on the couch, literally writhing in pain in labor, not delivery. That's a whole different thing. They're separate, but it's labor and all these pains are coming upon her. And our friend looks at me and says, what do you think that we should do? And I said, what do you mean, what do, you think, what do I think we should do? And she says, do you think that we should go to the hospital or the birthing center now or wait longer and see how things progress? I'm like, you're asking me this question. Like the, the, the child is in her, it's not in me. I have no idea. My degrees are in theology. You have a degree in midwifery. Do your whiffing thing. I like guess what we're paying you to do. Why are you asking me this? And finally, I said, okay, let's go. So we go to the hospital, and within 30 minutes, we had a child in the hospital. 30 minutes. We were there for half an hour. My wife has our third son. I'm thinking, what if we would have waited? 
The point is, those, those birthing pains came on my wife very suddenly and very quickly. We knew it was coming. All the signs were suggesting that it was gonna happen at around that time, and it comes, but it still was so painful and so shocking, it just astonished her. That's how the end's gonna be. And so what Peter is kind of calling us to here is don't be unprepared for this. Don't be, you don't wanna be shocked by this. You don't wanna be astonished and, and caught off guard and lulled to sleep by this world and have this come upon you like a thief in the night or birth pains upon a woman in labor. You don't want that to happen. And so what do you do? Well, the whole passage Peter tells us, but this verse says to do two things. This is number two. Is, he says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. So what he says is, you, as, the end, uh, as the end approaches, we control uh, ourselves, our impulses, our desires. Um, what self-control is, it means that you can tell yourself no. That you have, you have the ability, you have by God's grace, that when you have a desire that's contrary to what God wants you to desire, you can tell yourself no in that moment. That's what self-control is. The other thing is that you're, you're sober in your mind, you're sober in your thinking, so you're not off balance, you're not, uh, your mind's not foggy the way, the way someone who's physically drunk is, but you actually think the right way. Now why does Peter start, why does he start with that? Why does Peter not go into all the things that we could be doing for the gospel, all the ways we could evangelize the world? If the end is coming, we need to get the word out and be evangelizing and be on mission, all those things. There's a place for that. But the first thing Peter says is so basic. It just seems so normal and just basic to say as the end approaches, you control yourself and how you think. Why does he say start with that? Well, I think he says it because all of us think that we have more time. I mean, every person thinks that we just, especially when you're young, I mean, if you're in your 20s, you think that you have all the time in the world, but trust me, you don't. Um, you think that I, we have time, and so we don't think about the end. We don't think about Christ rending the heavens and coming down. We, don't, we just don't live with the end in mind, and all of us think that we have more time um, to walk in our own ways, to experiment for a while, to just indulge our desires. All of the, Every Christian at some point thinks this little dark thing in their minds. I can sin now and repent later. I have time. Every Christian at some point, there's, that's what temptation tells you. That when you are tempted to whatever the sin that is, you think I can do this now and I can repent later. Some of you came in tonight planning to sin later and repent tomorrow. That's what happens to us. Because all of us think that we have more time. And so we don't, we don't live with this urgency to control ourselves and be sober in our thinking because no one thinks the end is at hand. In fact, if you see someone in Austin with a sign that says the end is at hand, what do you think? They're crazy. They've lost their mind. They're, they're not, they're clearly, they're not a sane person. Not what Peter says, though. What Peter says is, is the end is at hand, therefore be sober in your mind. And so what Peter's saying is the person who is in their right mind thinks the end is at hand. It's the person who says, no, we're making progress and uh, we're on the way up and we have all, we're just getting started. We've got plenty of time. That is crazy according to what Peter's saying here. The crazy person says, we have plenty of time. We can walk in our own ways. We can do all that we want to right now. We have lots and lots of time. What he says is the end is at hand. Now, we don't panic 
We don't freak out and build bunkers and collect machine guns and canned foods, and we don't do that either. We're self-controlled, and we're sober in our thinking. Now, he said this 2,000 years ago. That seems kind of late. The end is at hand. Peter wrote these very words about 2,000 years ago. How do we understand this still, is it, is it still at hand is the question we should be asking. And I say yes because Peter's point here is not that we should try to predict this or date this or guess when this is going to happen. The point is you don't know. It's at hand, meaning this could happen in a moment, and therefore you should stay awake. Uh, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 24, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know the day. Um, If someone says they know the day, Jesus says you don't. Because here's the thing, if you knew the day, you would not live with urgency, would you? Now, you think you would. You think, yeah, if I just knew when Christ would return, I could get my life straight and get things in order, I could prepare for that. No, you would not do that. I know you, and you know you, and I know me. We would not live like that. If you knew when the time was when Christ would return and the end would come, you would not live with urgency, What we would do is we would drink in this world as best as we could, as the most that we could, and at last minute hit the the moral breaks and get right with God and clean ourselves up and then wait for the return. You would not live with this kind of control and this kind of urgency. And so he doesn't tell us. You're not supposed to know. What you're supposed to do is stay awake. And, and think that he could come at any moment, the end could happen, at, it is close at hand, it could happen at any moment, therefore you stay awake, you control yourself, you're sober in your thinking, you stay in your right mind as you wait for him. Now let me give an example of what it means, I think, to wait for this. My, uh, my wife, she, um, she is one of the most, she's so high capacity as a person, more, I mean, more than anyone I really know in my, honestly, in my life. If you saw her schedule, you would think that she was an Avenger. She just does so much in a, in a week's time, so um, she uh, runs a small business right now. She reads about 40 books a year. Um, she watches our three sons. She's on PTA. She serves on Sunday. She does Camp Gladiator. She literally is an Avenger. She is a superhero. Um, I just kind of watch and work out and just kind of read C.S. Lewis and just let her do her thing. But she's incredible, truly. Um, there's one area, though, that drives me insane. So if we have to be somewhere at, say, 6 p.m., both of us, we ain't making it. We're just, we're not gonna make it. She is chronically late. She will not arrive. In fact, she likes to arrive somewhere late. She intentionally waits to get ready last minute and shows up somewhere 15 minutes late. She loves that because it drives me crazy. And she goes somewhere, everywhere that she's gone our entire life, she's always late for it. So on date night, date night happens and uh, the sitter is there and I'm ready and the kids are distracted, but she, guess what? She's not ready yet and so I wait. Now, I know two things as I wait. One, I know she's going to eventually come out and be ready. I know it. Right? She will, she'll get dressed. She'll do whatever it is that she does in there, and she will be ready, and she'll look amazing, and we'll go out. So I know that's going to happen. Um, I also know, though, that she's not working on my schedule. She has no concern for my schedule and my reservations or she is just doing her own thing and so I can pace the house, I can ask loud questions, I can walk by and see how she's doing, but it does not change the fact she is not on my schedule. But here's the thing, she could come at any moment. 
She could show up at any second. I don't have time to watch Stranger Things or cut the grass. I can't do anything. I have to wait and watch and be awake for when she shows up, when she walks out, her getting ready is at hand. You see how it works? Jesus is exactly the same way. He's, he's gonna come again. He promised us over and over, promised his disciples, he promised, the, the apostles promised this. Jesus is going to return again. He came once, and all of the prophets just kind of called this shot for decades and centuries. He came once, he's coming again, but he is not on your schedule or my schedule. And so the point is, he might show up at any moment. In the twinkling of an eye, as a thief in the night, as labor pains come upon a woman, like this is gonna happen and you do not have time to sin now and repent later is what the Bible is telling us. This could happen any moment, therefore you stay awake, you stay in your right mind. All the, all the parables that Jesus tells about the end, um, it shocked people. They were, they were indulging their desires, they were giving themselves to everything that they could, and they were not expecting the end to come, and the end comes crashing upon them, and they are utterly dismayed and shocked by it. And so Jesus tells us that, that we might stay awake and not slumber and not sleep and not walk in the darkness, but stay in the light, because when he comes, you want to be ready for him. Now, I think, I think deep down, many of us, we have to admit this, that we might not want the end to come and for Christ to renew all things. And I say that because I know that many of you, um, you're on the way up in this world. You are comfortable right now and you have so much ahead of you and there's so much that you want to ac- accomplish and dreams that you have and desires that you want to achieve and goals that you want to pursue. And in your mind, deep down, you might think if Christ comes back or if the end actually comes, it's gonna ruin all that. Now again, it's a dark thought, but all of us have to assess and ask the question, do I love this world too much? Do I actually think that what is in this life is better and more satisfying than what's coming for me in the next life? All of us have to wrestle with that. Some of you have so much in your future, so much ahead of you, you're so talented and skilled, have all these resources and gifts, and there's so much life to live for you, and in your mind you think, man, if Christ comes back, I won't make my mark in this life. If he comes back, I will miss out on something, and that is not being sober in your thinking. If you think that what is coming for you in the next life is somehow inferior to this life, you don't know what's coming. If you think that you're gonna miss out on something in this life, if the other life comes ushering in, you don't know what's ahead of you. That's not being sober in your mind. So the question is, where do you need to be sobered up in your thinking? Maybe it's with your career or with relationships or your sexuality or entertainment or food or drink. Where do you need self-control right now? Where do you need to tell yourself no right now tonight? What temptations, what areas, what inclinations, what desires do you have right now that you know you should not indulge? Where do you most need self-control right now? Let, let the idea of the end being near create that sense of urgency in you. Let that be like smelling salts to just awaken you to the fact that you don't have time. You think you have time. Because when the end comes, you will believe what Peter says. You will believe that the end actually was at hand. You, you'll be shocked and you will think, man, Peter was right. The end really came like a thief, like labor pains. It, it shocks us. You don't want to be shocked by this. And so stay awake. 
Um, control yourself. See what things in your life right now you're doing that you're going to regret when the end comes. And put those things to death. Kill those things every single day of your life. As you think about the end, sin should look horrible to us. As we contemplate that when Christ will come, we're going to see him face to face, sin now ought to look horrible to us because of what's coming for us. And obedience looks so glorious and so satisfying and so life-giving to us. So the end of all things, it is, it is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And number three, and we're done, for the sake of your prayers. So what, what Peter wants as the end approaches is not us uh, trying to predict this or trying to, or not panicking. He wants us to be praying. And so all of this is serving, I mean, Peter is serious about your prayer life. Peter says that back in chapter three, verse seven, that, that, that husbands should understand their wives and care for their wives, that their prayers wouldn't be hindered. Peter is always um, calling us and pushing us toward prayer. Now, it seems interesting, it almost seems counterintuitive that Peter would say, um, the end of all things is at hand, therefore you should pray. So if the end of all things is really at hand, why should I pray more? It seems like God kind of has this under control and why, what do my prayers matter? But what he's saying is the opposite. He's saying that the end is at hand, your future is certain, your destination, it is, it is guaranteed, therefore you should pray. And so you pray because your future is certain, not because you doubt it. And so as you believe your future is certain, that makes you pray more, not less, is what he's saying. Uh, Jesus was the same way. Jesus was always praying. And you could say of Jesus, well, um, he knows the mind of God. He knows the will of the Father. He knows all that God's doing. He knows all that God's planning. And yet Jesus is always praying. He knows God so much, it seems like he wouldn't need to pray, right? No, it's because he knows God. It's because he knows all that the Father is up to that he has to pray. He must pray. Prayer is part of who he is. The more you know God, the more you will pray and seek after him. And Jesus is calling you tonight into prayer. That as the end approaches, as you seek to control yourself and and prepare yourself and tell yourself no so that you can pray. And there's a place in Matthew 26, I think it's interesting, that kind of sheds light on this. In Matthew 26, this is when Jesus goes in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. Uh, he sweat drops of, sweats drops of blood and asks God to remove the cup from him. And he brings with him Peter, James, and John. And he goes uh, off by himself for a bit and he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And here's what Jesus says to them. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, I like this, he doesn't just say to everyone, but he says to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not stay awake, Peter, and just... And just watch with me for one hour. And he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation for the, uh, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. This is often seen as a, a rebuke to Peter. And in some sense it is. He's saying, couldn't you just stay awake for an hour? I'm over here sweating drops of blood. You're sleeping. Could you not just keep your eyes open for an hour and pray with me? But what he doesn't say is, could you not watch for one hour? What he actually says is, could you not watch with me for one hour. You catch that? Jesus wants them praying and watching with him. He invites them into the garden with him. This is an invitation to them. And so prayer is not just this lonely, isolated, individual thing that you just go and kind of white knuckle and grit your teeth and just somehow grind through it. Prayer is getting away and being with Jesus. 
You're, you get to go and be with a, with a living and breathing person. He is calling you into prayer. He's praying with you. He's praying for you. You're not just going off and doing this by yourself. You're actually getting to be with Jesus. That's how you should view prayer. As the end approaches, prayer is what keeps you near him. And when the end comes crashing in upon us, you want to be near Jesus when the end comes. You don't want to be far from him. You don't want to be putting off being with him. You want to be as close as you possibly can to Jesus in prayer when the end comes. And so prayer keeps us close to him, and we pray because we're certain, because our future is certain. We don't pray because we're hopeless or because we're uncertain. We pray because our hope is sure. We pray because our future, our destination, the renewal of all things, we pray because it's going to happen. And this keeps us close to him, and prayer shows that you actually believe this. So prayer shows that you believe the end is at hand, that you believe that renewal is coming, that judgment's coming. Prayer shows that you are awaiting this second advent. And so as the end draws near, whenever the end is, I don't know when it is, we don't, we're not told that, but as, as it draws near upon us, fight for your prayer life. Do everything that you possibly can to be with Jesus as much as you possibly can. Do not put this off. Make your life serve prayer. Don't make prayer serve your life to where it's always taking a back seat, always no time, always too busy. You are too busy not to pray. You have so much to do and so much to be and so much life before you, you cannot make it apart from prayer. And so make your life serve prayer, get into Jesus' presence, get to know him, walk with him, be near him, bask in his wisdom, learn who he is, learn his ways, learn how to walk with this God and king who saved us. And so as the end approaches, as the end of all things is near us, we don't panic, we don't, we don't freak out, the world does that, we pray, we control ourselves, we sober up, we're sober in our thinking, and we seek to be with Jesus at, at all times. And if you're not a Christian tonight and you're hearing this, if you're not sure where you are with the gospel and Christianity, I wanna tell you that I think that deep down you know this. I think deep down you know the world's not the way it's supposed to be. I think just look around. I think that something in you just says that this is not how the world was supposed to be. And I, I guarantee you that you long for justice. You long to see renewal. You long for this. And the story of Christianity is utterly unique there's, there's nothing like this that says that God's going to actually renew this world. God's gonna renew this physical, tangible world. He's gonna make everything new and put everything right and right all the wrongs and put down all the mutinies of corruption and death and Satan and sin. He's going to do this. You won't find this story anywhere else in this life. And so I think deep down you actually long for this. You may think this idea of the end being at hand sounds primitive or just kind of backward, but I guarantee you, look, look deep enough in your heart, you long for this to happen. What you most long for is not in this life, it's in the next life that's coming for those who believe. And so you can actually be caught up in this story tonight. And so open your life up. You can know who this king is. Open your life up to him Ask him, if, if, ask him if, if you're real, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to me? And he'll do that. He'll do that right now. Open your life to him. Ask him to come in and, and save your life and be your savior and your king and your treasure and your Lord. And he will do that. And when the end comes, it, it won't be the end for you. 
The end will not be your end. The end will be this new beginning for you and your story will only get better and better and more glorious and more glorious. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need um, a lot of grace to believe this tonight. That nothing, nothing around us teaches us this. Nothing around us shows us how to live in light of, your, of, the, of the end of all things, of your return. And so I pray that you would, where our faith is weak, would you strengthen us? Where there's doubt, would you give us hope? Would you give us life? Would you give us joy? And, and, and God, to believe that you're actually going to set this world right and renew everything that, and that we long for that. It's not some fairy tale, it's not just some nice idea, but it is truth that you promised to us, Jesus, and we are, we are banking everything on that promise tonight. So would you help us, would you help us modern people in Austin, Texas, believe that there will actually be a new city coming down from heaven that will be like a bride ready for her husband? It'll be glorious, it'll be beautiful, it'll be without sin, without corruption, and that, that's what our hearts most long for, to dwell with you on, this, on a perfected earth. That's what we most long for. Would you, would you help us to believe that's actually gonna happen? I and mean, it's not just be some distant thought for us, but actual truth that we, that we bank our lives on tonight. Father, would you wake us up and would you help us to, uh, to live with self-control, to tell ourselves no? that the temptations that we're thinking about even right now, God, would you stop us in our tracks and help us tell ourselves no and say yes to you. Awaken us in our minds, help us to think clearly, to think biblically, to think the way that you would have us. Give us the mind of Christ, give us a mind filled with truth and not error, filled with life and not death, God. And help us to pray, Father, we we're not good at that if we're honest, and so would you help us to, to every day to seek to be in your presence, uh, to know that, um, that just our feeble attempts that you were you are honored by in some way, and help us to go and be with your son, to be with Jesus who is praying with us, with us and for us, who makes intercession for us. Help us to get, to get away and be with him, to bask in his presence, to, to get to know him, and all the days of our life to be spent living for you. Father, we need you. God, use this text, use this sermon series, use this Advent season to awaken us to the fact that our King is gonna come again and set all that's wrong right and make the world as we long for it to, to be made. God, help us to believe that and celebrate that this season. We ask all these things in your great name, amen.